find ourselves today in, in a bit of a, a topical message. It's going to be from Genesis 10. Last time we were together in the text, we considered the events of Genesis 11, learning about humanity's rebellion through remaining united, but not just that they were united, but they were united unto an end. An end that they would make for themselves a name and build a tower which reached into heaven. The account that we regularly call the account of the Tower of Babel or of the confusion of languages. So the text told us as we thought through Genesis 11 that God came down to look at the tower and he lamented that they as one people would have no natural restraint upon the imagination of their hearts. And we spent our time of application thinking through that idea of the imagination of their hearts, finding that in the three times that we have seen this idea of man following the imagination of his own heart, all three times it has brought about tremendous wickedness, violence, and evil upon the earth. And so we, we trace that through Scripture, understanding that uh, the Scriptures speak of our hearts as the seat of our, our emotions. And as we think through that concept, what we find is that the scriptures warn us against being driven by, motivated by, and uh, having our emotions as the seat of our motivation. That instead we are called to filter those things through truth so that truth can orient our emotions properly, our feelings properly, our perceptions properly, lest inverting this we follow after the imaginations of our own heart, which the scriptures tell us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If we follow our hearts, it will lead us into wickedness. And so God confounded the languages, the text told us in Genesis chapter 11, scattering the families across the earth and creating the nations, which we considered in Genesis chapter 10 in what we call the table of nations. And it was actually in that chapter, it was in Genesis chapter 10, that we came across the name of a man named Nimrod. And recall what we read about him at that time. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says this, And Cush begat Nimrod... And he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. And we mentioned this just in passing. That not only would we come back to Nimrod, but we mentioned why we would come back to Nimrod. Because when a genealogy pauses upon a man, when, when he, it takes its standard format of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, or so-and-so lived a number of years and then begat so-and-so and then lived after he begat so-and-so a number of years and begat sons and daughters, when we see that formula changed, we, it, it causes us to perk our ears a little bit and ask the question of why. Why was the formula changed? And we've traced the why through several different iterations throughout the course of Genesis already. We first saw this iteration, iterative change with Enoch. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And Enoch, it does not say that he lived a certain number of years. It says he walked with God a certain number of years and was not for the Lord took him. And so we find this idea of, of a change. And that change in, in the genea genealogy, in the method caused us to perk our ears and to say, well, what was it about this man Enoch that the Bible wanted to highlight and that is worth our consideration? And so we went to the New Testament and we found Enoch. And we also said the same thing of Lamech, right? We see this genealogy of Cain, and in the eighth generation of the genealogy of Cain, we come to this man named Lamech. And then after we see Lamech's sons, we actually fall back to Lamech, and he gives that what we call the song of the sword, right? And the, the, the idea of of, of him using the technologies or the instruments that his sons had, had created to bring about violence upon the earth. And then we thought about it just this, uh, just recently, really last week, about Peleg. And in the days of Peleg, we, we see this genealogy of, of all of these various people. And then it said in Genesis chapter 10 that in the days of Peleg, 
the earth was divided. Why would the scripture speak of that? And so we connected that to the last verse in Genesis chapter 10, speaking of the generations and the nations being divided and deducing from that that the years of Peleg were the years in which the languages were actually confounded and so the nations were divided. So we've seen this consistently throughout that when the genealogy stops on someone and adds information, that there is some reason why that information is being added and that, generally speaking, it's worth us at least digging into or looking into a little bit. And so we begin to address this man named Nimrod. And there's actually much to discuss here. The text tells us that Nimrod was the son of Cush, who was one of the four sons of Ham. It is notable that this son is not the cursed son. Of course, that was Canaan. And we find that Nimrod thus was the grandson of Ham which gives us a possible general timetable based upon the timing that we discussed last week. Noah's grandson, Salah, was born 37 years after the flood, as we said last time, nearly halfway between the flood and the days of Peleg. And those days of Peleg are that yellow portion there. Peleg is born 101 years after the flood, and he dies 340 years after the flood. Consequently, he actually died before Noah did. Um, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. Now, so it was in the generation of Salah, that, that second generation after the flood, that Nimrod was born. Of course, we do not know exactly when it was that Nimrod was born. We do not have numbers for him. But the fact that he was born in the same generation as Salah means that the cities over which Nimrod ruled may well have been established many years before God divided the languages. And these are the things that we think about. It's entirely possible, based upon how long Arphaxad lived and, 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 and um, Ham lived and such, that he may have had, um, uh, that, that, that Cush may have had Nimrod later in his life. And so Nimrod might have been closer to the generation of Eber or even maybe closer to the generation of Peleg in age. But one way or another... We do recognize that he was born into that same generation as Salah as it relates to the generations following the flood. Now, Nimrod is called a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the Bible says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne. And the text tells us that all of these cities over which Nimrod ruled in the beginning of this kingdom, the kingdom of Nimrod, were in the land of Shinar. That would be in that area, that Mesopotamian valley that we talked about already, uh, where we find, <coughs> excuse me, where we find modern day Baghdad in Iraq, uh, where we would have found Babel and Babylon, which we'll talk about significantly more next week, being the same city. Babel is Babylon, and I'll prove that to you next week as we consider the legacy of Babylon. In that we get the history of Babel specifically. Nimrod is spoken of, and it speaks of the beginning of his kingdom, and it talks through the various aspects of the beginning of his kingdom, being Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne. Babel is the first one mentioned. Usually, both in Greek and in Hebrew, the first one mentioned is the prominent one. And on top of the fact that Babel is the one where they built that tower, Babel is the one where they sought to, to elevate themselves to the position of God and compete with God for, for, for his deity, we would imagine that Babel was in fact the chief city of Nimrod's kingdom. Now, as it relates to what the Bible has to say, there's not a whole lot more, as a matter of fact, there isn't anything more that the Bible says about Nimrod himself. So I guess my sermon's over. No, it's not over. You're not going to get away with that easy. But there is a unified tradition about Nimrod. And today I want to help you think through that unified tradition of Nimrod and see the places where the legacy of Nimrod does in fact touch into the scriptures and into even the modern day today based upon this unified tradition that we find throughout history. And as I say this, it's important to understand that as we study the legacy of Nimrod this week, as we study the legacy of Babel next week, we are merging what we know in the Bible with some elements of history and tradition. And I am always extremely uncomfortable doing this. One of the things about the way I preach, if you followed me for any 
length of time as I like to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and walk through the Bible. And my comfort in teaching the Bible is that I don't stray far from it. That's where I find my comfort. I don't like to stray far from the Bible. And so this message is a little bit less comfortable for me. We talked in Genesis 10 about the nature of assumptions in interpretation. When we think through this, a part of the interpretive process is establishing the fundamental assumptions that undergird interpretation itself. And in doing so, we understand our own conclusions better, and we also understand our limitations to what we can know. Now, just because we can't definitively say something from the Word of God or from history does not mean we cannot allow those assumptions or those, those insinuations to still play out. We simply have to be careful. We have to understand those limitations. We have to understand how they affect our conclusions. All of us add assumptions to our interpretive method, and if we change our assumptions, even if we're reading the same thing in the text, even if we're looking at the same history or the same science or whatever it might be, we are going to come to different conclusions if we begin with different assumptions. Now, beyond just understanding fundamental assumptions, there are subjective elements uh, that are involved in our interpretation. Good interpretation, as I said, recognizes its limitations, areas of study which we simply maybe cannot go because we lack the necessary understanding, knowledge, or context to be able to make any sort of a judgment call. We'll often talk about that when we talk about the spirit realm, that there are Uh, volumes and volumes of books written about the spirit realm, but there's very little in the scripture that gives us definitive teaching about the spirit realm. And so what we are gleaning from uh, is, is the teaching that we have, the examples that we find in scripture, pass through the interpretive lens of how we understand God working in various ages from past to present to future to come to relative conclusions. Well, various other people use different methods in order to come to their conclusions on the spirit realm. Namely, and this is the one I warned you about in our spiritual warfare series a couple years ago, that you'll find that a lot of the books that are written on spiritual warfare are written by people who got their information from Satanists, witches, warlocks, druids, and the like. And where did they get their information from the wicked and evil spirits, the mediums who they were interacting with. And yet, if Satan is the father of lies, I'm going to be extremely skeptical of any information that some Satanist pulled from the spirit that was talking to him. Why should I assume that that spirit was actually giving that Satanist any real insight into the spirit realm? Why should I assume that they gave anything that was true? And so when we see these books that are written that are actually founded upon insights rooted in the spirit realm drawn from former, which is warlocks and the like, I'm not going to give a whole lot of credibility to that, whereas others do, okay? So we need to understand that each of us come with fundamental assumptions. My assumption is whatever demon was talking to that person, even though that person may now be a believer, that demon was probably lying. That's just my fundamental assumption. Their fundamental assumption is that demon was telling the truth. We're going to come to very different conclusions if we have those, that difference in fundamental assumptions. So we do this, and we do this regularly in various aspects of the Christian life in areas where there's a measure of ambiguity. And then there's certain times where we simply have to say, you know what, God has not given us enough information, so we're just not going to even go there. And I'm tempted to do that with Nimrod this morning, but I'm not going to. As I said, the reason why is because we do not only have a unified tradition, but the the fingerprints of what the tradition of Nimrod points to are very real and very biblical. So while I may not be accurate or or the, 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 the traditions or the history may not be accurate about how all of these things began, maybe Nimrod is getting the credit for something that Nimrod does not deserve the credit for. Yet what we trace from that tradition, we have objectively in the Bible, and we can even see it objectively in the world today. So we'll come to what I believe are consistent conclusions that can be derived from tradition, history, and what the Bible can teach us. And the first general assumption that I'm going to make here is that the city of Babel is, in fact, Babylon. As I said, um, I will prove this as best I can prove it next week. I think that it's very, very clear 
that the city of Babel is, in fact, Babylon. And that, that assumption is going to come into play quite a bit more next week. I think that's a very well-founded assumption. Um, the, the less grounded assumption is Nimrod and the place that he holds in paganism and religious cults. And this legacy of Nimrod, as we follow it over the course of this sermon, is rooted in a pagan system that's often called the mother-child cult. It's a pagan worship system found in almost every civilization throughout history. And the idea of the mother-child cult is that it's a system of worship which deifies a woman goddess who represents motherhood, creation, fertility, And then in almost every incarnation of this, hence the reason why it's called a mother-child cult, this mother gives birth to a son who is a co-heir to said divinity. In Canaan, the woman's name was Semiramis, and her son's name was Tammuz. In later Semitic variations, you would have the woman's name as Ashtart, or Ashtoreth, or Ashtar, or Ishtar. And her son's name was Baal. In ancient Germanic cultures, they worshipped the virgin mother Erta and her son. Scandinavians called it Disa and her son. Egyptians, her name was Isis, and she is often found holding her son Horus, the reincarnation of her slain husband Osiris. In India, the virgin mother was called Devaki with her son Krishna, or Isi with Iswara. In Asia, it was Sibyl, and her son, Deoius. In Rome, the virgin mother was Fortuna, and her son, Jupiter Pur. In Greece, the virgin mother was Irene, and her son was Pluto. In China, it was Xing Mu with her child in her hands. And even the idea of Mother Earth draws from this virgin mother, queen of heaven idea for worship. Now, as I've gone through this, you've noticed that in most of these cases, it is speaking of a virgin mother with a child. And you say, well, pastor, don't we kind of have one of those in our worship system as well? We have a virgin mother and child. Indeed, we do. But there is a big difference between what we have in the scriptures and what all of these other, what we would call mother-child cult systems, reflect. We connect this to scripture and we find all of these manifestations uh, of a mother-child cult are a counterfeit of Mary and Jesus. And I'll show you what the difference is. Perhaps you already picked up on it, but I'll show you what the difference is as we continue through the message. Now, as we think through Nimrod himself and the way that the scriptures interact with this this mother-child cult throughout the, the history of the scriptures themselves, we connect it to two of these traditions. The first one is the, uh, actually it's the first two that I spoke of. The first is Semiramis and her son Tammuz. And the second is Astarte and her son, Baal. But it all began, if history and tradition informs us properly, with Nimrod. Religious history states that Nimrod was this great king over this initial civilization that began at Babel. And he had great authority and power in the world following the flood. This tradition tells us he had a wife and her name was Semiramis. And therefore, Semiramis was Nimrod's queen. And she wielded great power in the region as well. Tradition states that Nimrod eventually met with a violent death at the hand of others in the kingdom. Perhaps that's what the Lord saw when he came down and he saw that they were building this tower into heaven. And the violence, the pre-flood violence was already starting to find its way into the system itself. And so Nimrod died, but Semiramis, very eager to retain power, sought to attribute the privileges of Messiah to Nimrod. Now remember, everyone in this culture would have known the promise of Messiah rooted in what God promised to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there was coming a day when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That promise was given in the day that, that Adam and Eve fell that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That is the first promise in the scriptures of Messiah. 
And then, of course, subsequently, you had the prophecies of Enoch, of which we learn about a little bit in the New Testament. One of those prophecies of Enoch was that the Lord would be coming back with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. So we have this prophecy of Messiah, and then we have this prophecy of God's judgment that is coming. And tradition states that Semiramis, in, a, in her zeal to maintain her power after the death of her husband Nimrod, elevated her son, Tammuz, to a place of divinity. And she stated that Nimrod had willingly given his life, that he had ascended into heaven, and in doing so, he was the one who crushed the head of the serpent, and that he is to be worshipped as divinity. And then she contended that Nimrod had experienced a resurrection in the form of his son named Tammuz, so that Tammuz was literally the very son of God, making Semiramis the wife of God and the mother of God called the Queen of Heaven. And she was called by that name, the Queen of Heaven, among various other names that we see throughout tradition given to all of these women. The Virgin Mother, Holy Mother, Alma Mater, and then that highest title, the Queen of Heaven. Now, what we find here is a perversion. A perversion of the gospel story. The perversion of the Virgin Mary giving birth to her son, Jesus Christ, started very, very early on in history in a counterfeit system intended to draw the hearts of people away from the truths of the gospel and into a counterfeit truth system. And we should not be surprised by this because Satan's counterfeit kingdom always works in this fashion, mimicking and perverting the promises of God, of which we'll have more to say in a couple of weeks. But even beyond Satan's proclivity to counterfeit, we also see in this very clever tactic, which we know that Satan is predisposed to use, a way of drawing people away from truth by bringing them as close to truth as possible while remaining in error. Paul warns about this method of Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. Paul says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. He's speaking of people who are false teachers, false apostles, false um, uh, um, false representatives of Jesus Christ. And he says that there is no marvel that these people will come into the world, verse 14, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his, that would be Satan's ministers, also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Satan has a true affinity, Christian, for counterfeiting. Getting as close to something that is true as possible, while maybe only being off by a couple of degrees. Because the closer he can get to the truth without being truth, the more people will be convinced and duped into believing the lie, because it's only off by a couple of degrees. In fact, it's much easier, is it not? to convince a person to believe an almost truth than it is to get them to believe a blatant lie. When somebody comes speaking a blatant, overt, and outright lie, people recognize it as a blatant, overt, and outright lie. And because it's so blatant, so overt, and so outright, uh, they reject it outright. It is actually the ones who come merging mostly truth with kernels of lie that tend to be the most effective. And this is why we care so much about the doctrine of separation, about the elements of compromise. In philosophical and political terms, we call this idea, this compromising idea, the Hegelian dialectic, intended to change our relationship to truth. And let me explain that that philosophical idea briefly to you because it becomes very... um, Relevant in the age we find ourselves in today. The Hegelian dialectic is credited to the philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who lived from 1770 to 1831. He spoke of a system of finding truth, which in many ways, we call it the Hegelian dialectic, but in, but in many ways it actually falls back upon uh, the Socratic method of uh, Plato's days in Greece. It's an interpretive method that was originally used to relate specific entities or specific events to absolute ideas, in which a proposition, an assertable proposition, so something that was rational and reasonable, called a thesis, is opposed by another rational and reasonable assertive proposition called the antithesis. 
So both of these are assertive propositions. They're both rational and reasonable, but they're on two sides of the spectrum. And the idea here is that, in theory, you take the assertions that are found in the thesis and the antithesis, and you merge them together to find a higher level of truth that is often called the synthesis. And once you have found the synthesis of the thesis and the antithesis, then that synthesis becomes the new thesis. You find its antithesis. You merge them again. And in theory, as you're doing so, you're supposed to be getting getting ever closer to the truth when one person's perspective and another person's perspective are being merged and you're finding yourself closer and closer to truth, reconciling them to find a new synthesis every time. And in many ways, this system is very good. In fact, I encourage us all to do a similar thing semi-regularly as it relates to various aspects of Christian doctrine, don't I? Where we take a proposition on one side and we take the counter-proposition on the other side and I say, if you find two people who are well-meaning, love the Lord, desire to, to trust the Word of God and desire to do what's right by the Word of God and one person stands on this side, let's say that man has a free will, And the other person stands on the other side, which is that God is absolutely sovereign. And I said, if you're looking at these two positions of the free will of man on one side and the sovereignty of God on the other side, and you're looking for where God stands, the best place to look is right about there to start. And then you can start start to move out from, from there because you're going to be looking for a place of balance. And in some senses, the Hegelian dialectic is, 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 is that. It's supposed to be finding that balance where two people that both have assertive propositions, reasonable perspectives, are going to be looking for truth somewhere in the middle of their reasonable perspectives. But here's the difference between how we might look at that dialectic and how Satan might use it. We use this dialectic as a way to filter through truth as each side of, say, a doctrinal debate is looking to conform their understanding to what God has said. In other words, if you and I are sharing the same worldview and we are sharing the same appreciation for God and for his truth, if we are both looking for God's word and you have one perspective and I have another perspective, us taking those perspectives and looking for that common ground and seeking where those things can be merged makes a lot of sense. But here's what Satan does. What he does is he wants to encourage the Christian to merge his biblical understanding with truth, his biblical worldview, with the world's understanding of truth, a humanistic worldview. And the moment that you take two people that have two entirely different worldviews that are not just coming at the same question from two different angles, but they're actually trying to answer two different questions and you try to merge them, all you have in the middle is error and compromise. And this is what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to take what is the biblical worldview and he wants us to say, well, in the, in, in the, the manner of compromise... Let us take what the Bible says and let us just take these other valuable things from the world's perspective and let us bring them together into something that is more akin to truth. That's all well and good if you and I are both seeking God's truth, but the world is not seeking God's truth. And so if I'm merging we who are seeking God's truth with those who are seeking their own truth, we are not going to find anything close to God's truth. We are simply going to be adding truth with error, which makes error. And that will always be, 100% of the time, error itself. Because truth mixed with error is always error. And the error may sound more or less truthy, but it's still going to be error. And Satan loves to mix a little truth with a lot of error. Or a lot of truth with a little error. It doesn't matter to him, right? But if it looks like truth, if it sounds like truth, but it isn't truth, then it will set the most well-meaning people possible on the path to destruction. And this is the legacy of Nimrod and the mother-child cult. What history tells us Semiramis did, and again, whether or not she did it, whether or not Nimrod was involved, what this system has done throughout the centuries is it has taken a, a promise that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son and his name would, would, would be Messiah and he would save his people from his sins and it has merged it with error 
to bring about something which looks like truth, but is absolutely not truth. Now, where does this come up in the Bible? In Jeremiah chapter 7, I'm going to read a a healthy chunk of Jeremiah 7 this morning. I'm going to read to you 18 verses. And here we're going to find two manifestations of this mother-child cult in the days of Jeremiah. So the Bible says this in Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, and enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye will truly amend your ways and your doings, if ye truly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place and the land that I give you, uh, give, excuse me, that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not? And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Is this house, which is called by my name, even a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go ye now unto my place, which it was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, And I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not. And I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave you, and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. Therefore pray not thou for this people." Neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession for me to me, for I will not hear thee. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. We find here that in Jeremiah's day, This is toward the last days of Judah before the captivity of Babylon. This mother-child cult had found a prominent place in their worship. You find here both the son and the mother being worshipped. Where in verse 8, God spoke of the people burning incense to Baal. And then in verse 18, that the whole family was working together, kneading dough, starting the fire, doing everything necessary to worship the queen of heaven. And of course, in the case of Baal worship, that would have been Astarte or Ashtoreth or Ishtar or Ashtar. But in those days, there was also another deeper presence of this practice. Going all the way back to Nimrod, in fact. Going all the way back to Semiramis and Tammuz. In Ezekiel 8, God takes Ezekiel from his place at the river Kibar and he transports him to Jerusalem in spirit, to see the abominations that were taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. And God takes him from abomination to abomination, men erecting false images of God to worship, digging tunnels under the temple where they worship creatures and beasts rather than worshiping the true and living God. And at the end of this, the final one of these is in verse 13 and 14 of Ezekiel 8. It says, And he said unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat a woman weeping for Tammuz. In verse 14, Ezekiel sees a woman at the door of the gate of the temple. And she has turned her back on the Lord. And she is instead facing away, weeping for her sin before Tammuz, rather than before the Lord. And this brings us back to one of the several hallmarks of the mother-child cult as it relates to pagan worship. And this was a 40-day time of mourning. It began as a derivative of the legend of Tammuz, which says that he was killed by a wild boar and that he, when he had been killed by a wild boar, it was at the age of 40. 
To that end, when the kingdom had heard that Tammuz had been destroyed, they proclaimed a 40-day fast and mourning for him, one day for each year of his life, where they would weep for Tammuz, expecting that at the end of those 40 days of weeping, the father Nimrod would raise his son Tammuz from the dead. Now in Canaan, there was also a repurposing of that 40 days, not just in that Baal would be raised from the dead, but it actually was connected to their agricultural culture so that as they came toward the spring, they would weep for Baal or they would weep for Tammuz and that at the end of those 40 days, they would expect that Baal would resurrect and that would be the initiation of spring, of the growing season, that as Baal died, everything around them, because Baal was the god of those things, that everything around them had died as well. And then in the spring, when there was a renewal or a rejuvenation, there would be thus the resurrection of Baal at the end of this 40 days of weeping. And it was not just Baal and Tammuz that had infiltrated Israel. Baal's mother named Astarte, we saw, Ashtoreth, we saw. The perversion of the mother goddess Ashtoreth found its way into Israel in the days of Solomon as well. Recall that Solomon married many wives. As a matter of fact, he married 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the scriptures tell us that his wives drew his heart away from the true and living God to worship their own gods. And in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 13, the Bible says this, And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the, the, the Zidonians, and for Cheshmosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. So we see Ashtoreth worship. We see Baal worship. We see Tammuz worship. But what all does this matter for us today? Why did I take us through this little historical journey to look at the fingerprints of this legacy of Nimrod throughout the Old Testament? Well, because the legacy of the fingerprints of Nimrod still find themselves quite prevalent in our world today in modern times and cultures, and even in compromises with what has historically been understood to be Christianity. And of course, the most clear one of these, perhaps you've been a little bit confused, is you say, well, pastor, what is the difference between the mother-child cult that you're talking about and the Virgin Mary and Jesus? And the primary difference is this. Mary is not divinity. Mary is not deity. Mary is not the mother goddess. Mary was a vessel that the Lord used. She was blessed among women, but she was not elevated to a unique position of honor. As a matter of fact, do you recall the day that Jesus was teaching and his disciples came and said, Jesus, your mother and your brethren are without. And do you recall Jesus' response? He looked at those around him and said, these are my mother and my brethren, and all who will follow me. Jesus did not see his mother as some high and exalted, vaunted goddess. Did he honor her? We know he did. As he was on the cross, he looked down at the, at the man John and said, Behold thy mother. And to his mother he said, Behold thy son. He, he used his last breath to make sure his mother was going to be well cared for as he ought to have done. He submitted himself to her as he ought to have done in those days of the marriage of Cana and in the days when he, at at a young age, submitted himself to his mother and father when he said, Know ye not that I must be about my, my father's work? So we know he was a submissive son. He was an honoring to his mother, but he gave her no place of, of, of divinity. He gave her no place of co-heir in his glory. And so, as we think through this, if this is confusing to folks, the reason why is because the mother-child cult has, in fact, most prominently found its way into Christianity through Roman Catholicism. In the Roman Catholic Church, the relationship between Jesus and Mary is, in fact, different than what the Bible describes, isn't it? Within the Catholic Church, Mary is in fact called the Queen of Heaven, isn't she? The Virgin Mother, 
among several other names that conjure direct comparisons, not so much to what we find in the scriptures, but rather what we find in the mother-child cult. Mary is revered and worshipped, sometimes even above her son. The Catholic Church, much more in line with those pagan traditions than the biblical teachings, states Mary to be sinless herself, reckoning that there's no way she could have a sinless child if she was not herself without sin. And so she is ascribed as being the perpetual virgin, which, by the way, was something in the tradition of Semiramis as well, and being herself sinless. They pray to her. They sing to her and about her. And this is more reminiscent of the mother-child cult than it is anything that we find in the Word of God as it relates to the relationship between Mary and Jesus. Now, there are several other ways that we might see this compromise as well. The word Easter is a derivative of the name Ishtar. Lent is 40 days of mourning just before the resurrection of Jesus. And as I say this, I do so carefully because I'm careful to separate what Christians historically celebrate from the paganism which has encroached upon it. I preached a message on this topic in December of 2018. It's on YouTube. It's on Sermon Audio. It's called Christians and Holidays where I speak to many of the Christian concerns over both celebrating Christmas as well as the resurrection due to various pagan traditions that might be found within the seasons. And I encourage you to go listen to that sermon. I do conclude in that sermon that, that, that particularly as it relates to Christmas, and we don't call it Easter at Legacy Baptist Church. We call it Resurrection Sunday. We see Easter as a, as a different thing altogether per se. Um, but as it relates to those things, that there is a place for them, but that we have to be careful. And the reason why we have to be careful is because we do find a history of the merging of pagan with Bible. So I encourage you to go listen to that if any of these things trouble you. If you've come to your conclusions on this, I'm not here to challenge those conclusions today per se. Again, I think there's room for those who celebrate the Holy Day and those who do not, a la the exhortations of Paul and Colossians. But it is one of the reasons why the Baptist tradition does not observe Lent. Because while we can certainly see in Christmas and we can certainly see in the resurrection um, those things which connect us to biblical events that are worth celebrating, we find nothing in Scripture outside of the pagan influences of the land that would connect us to the Lenten practices. So again, that doesn't mean that everybody who, who observes Lent does so because they are pagan or because they don't love the Lord or because of their compromisers or whatever the case may be, but because we find nothing that connects us in the Bible to a 40-day period of mourning, we only find that in pagan tradition related to Baal and Tammuz. It's just not something that we have pursued in the, in, in the Baptist tradition. But of course, this, well, this cult goes well beyond just the ways that it expresses itself in compromised Christianity to other pagan systems as well. I mentioned earlier Mother Earth, a title that has been used by eco-fascist movements now for a couple of generations, but which is far more popular in the realm of modern-day witchcraft and Wicca and astrology and yoga and other forms of satanic worship. These are what we call Earth-based religions, and they all share the characteristic of being matriarchal, having a goddess at the top of the hierarchy rather than a god at the top of the hierarchy, elevating a singular goddess who is, in fact, the queen of heaven. Females, of course, always play a prominent role because of their fertility, which is the thing that the goddess is attempting to represent. And so the mother-child cult plays a very prominent role in their observance. And so we see this in things such as some of the, 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 the ways that, that, that the liturgical denominations have gone in their traditions. We also can see this in the eco-fascist movement and the Mother Earth connecting to Wicca and witchcraft and, and, and the like. But there's one more place that I'd like to go, one more way I'd like to highlight this mother-child cult idea before we close our time this morning. Later in Jeremiah 7, we read... In Jeremiah 7, a little bit later in Jeremiah 7, there's one more practice that's noted as being directly tied to Baal and to the Queen of Heaven and to the wickedness of that generation 
in Jeremiah's day. We read of this practice in chapter 7, verses 30 and 31. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, and pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. As the men and women of Jeremiah's day burned incense to Baal and worked together as a family to light the fire and to get the wood, to bake the cakes, to worship the queen of heaven, all of that was connected to them building these altars in Tophet in the valley of Hinnom by which they would take their children and they would sacrifice them to these gods in the fire. Sacrificing their children, oftentimes to Molech, in this context, to the queen of heaven. Human sacrifice has always been a hallmark of paganism. The death of the innocent to appease the gods. And this is something which is explicitly evil. Something which God says in Jeremiah 7, has, he has never commanded, nor has it ever even entered into his heart. Yet throughout every generation of pagan worship, there have always been human sacrifices. The desire to give of that thing, that human life, that most precious life, to give that offspring in order to show reverence to a deity and so incur some sort of favor for myself. Sacrificing my child on the altar of myself. Giving the life of my child away for my personal benefit. I need to be blessed and if this God asks for my child in order that I can be blessed, I will let my child die so that I might live better. That has always been the philosophy of this mother-child cult. That has always been the end result of this system of paganism. It's a perversion of God's principles whereby the parents are supposed to sacrifice and care for the children. And instead, the children die in order to preserve the well-being or the benefits of the parent. And of course, Satan loves it because it is rooted in death. It's also a perversion of God's principles, though, isn't it? From the very beginning, going all the way back to Cain and Abel, we found this first fruits principle. The idea that God desired that we would give the first fruits of ourselves, of, of our increase unto him. We still... Think about that first fruits principle today through concepts like the tithe, where we give the first of what we have earned to the church as a means by which to reflect unto the Lord the worth that is due unto his name. We <laughs> give him of the first fruits in confidence uh, in order to express our, our joy that he has given all of it to us and our confidence that he will continue to provide for our needs. And the perversion of this is that in consecrating the child unto the Lord, which is something that Israel also did. They instead would give, the, they, they would kill that child to the God of heaven, the queen of heaven. A perversion used by Satan to destroy the innocent and also to lead the guilty deeper into his grip. Human sacrifice has taken many forms over the year. In the case of Molech, the God of the land in which Israel inhabited, that's what you see there. They would place the child on the outstretched hands of a heated up idol. A gruesome ceremony. Human sacrifice was also common for ages in China, in Celtic religions. Of course, we know of the Incas and the Aztecs and uh, virgin sacrifice, child sacrifice. The ancient Hawaiians, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians all have such traditions in their own pagan cults. And add to that secular humanism in the Western world over the, especially the past three or four generations where human sacrifice has been systematized and sterilized in the form of the infanticide known as abortion. If anything has become apparent about abortion in the 21st century, it's that it carries with it a religious devotion and a visceral zeal among its proponents. Like with child sacrifice to Satan in any era, 
Many parents have been deceived and pressured, and I say this carefully. As I speak about abortion today, I am not seeking to heap guilt upon some young girl who has been deceived or confused or pressured into making a decision. That's not what I'm here to do. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But we must separate the reason why a person might make a decision from the fact that that decision can still absolutely be wicked and wrong before the Lord and abominable in his sight. And in the case of abortion, indeed it is. Like with any child sacrifice in any era of history, many parents have been deceived or pressured into this evil ritual believing that that's what they needed to do in order to find some measure of success or peace or, 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 or to, to fix their problems. And so they carry the guilt of what they know to be an act of evil with them. But among the leaders, among the clergy, if you will, there's often a delight in this exercise. In fact, this very thing made headlines just a couple of days ago. I don't know if you were reading the news. This is from February 1st. Today's February 5th. The Satanic Temple opened up a telehealth abortion clinic in New Mexico on the basis of the fact that abortion is a religious ritual of the Satanic Temple. And there's no lie there. It is a religious ritual of the Satanic Temple. A Satanic Temple whose theme, whose motto is thyself. Love thyself, know thyself. It's about self. In 2014, the United States of America, 926,000 children were aborted, murdered. That number was 1.21 million in 2005, so we thank God for the drop. Abortion began in the United States as as a racist attempt to cull black populations and a Marxist attempt to cull poor populations. To this end, black women are still three times more likely to have an abortion, Hispanic two times as likely. All of this, of course, stems from a culture that is obsessed with two things, sexual impurity and no accountability for decisions and actions. It is literally a sacrifice to the God of self that you cannot be inhibited in your sexual pleasures, nor can you be expected to take accountability for what those sexual pleasures reproduce, literally reproduce. And so in this, no accountability, this is the worship of the God of self. And so, all of this coming from this, this culture that is obsessed with self, we now have a culture that undergirds our society in a way that, in consistency with a biblical understanding of God's character, the Lord simply will not ignore. God tells us in Jeremiah 7 that he has never desired such things. They have never come into his mind. He has never wanted them. Now, thank God for that landmark decision last year in the United States where the Supreme Court removed the shackles of what had been holding the American people hostage to this wicked practice for 49 years. And in the first 60 days of the effects of the Dobb decision, it's estimated that, that 10,000 fewer babies were aborted over just the first 60 days of the ramifications of, of that Supreme Court decision. So we thank God for that. Nevertheless, the practice still continues. And as it continues, relatively unabated, we recognize that it is little more than a continuation of the legacy of Nimrod that began in Genesis 10. A few more things to say about this before we conclude. As I've said, ours is not the first culture or society to deal with such abominations, to God's design and to true worship. The sacrifice of the innocent to the God of this age has been practiced in society as long as Satan has been deceiving men and women. But what we must remember is that it is an issue that afflicts our generation as well. And just because it has been justified in the name of whatever, women's rights or health care or reproductive justice or whatever the catchword is of the day, it does not and it cannot change the fact that the mass slaughter of the innocent children in the name of the God of self and of society is happening in this country, that the legacy of Nimrod continues unabated today. And this should cause us first to fall upon our knees and beg God for mercy for our land, because we're going to need it. The God of this world, however, is the enemy. And we need to remember that as well. 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, the scriptures tell us, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Your enemy are not the people who are walking in the deception. Your enemy is the deceiver. There is room and great amount of room for compassion and mercy and understanding and thoughtfulness toward those who have been deceived into this practice because there are millions upon millions of them. And if you have been personally touched by abortion in some way, shape, or form, that is, this, this is not a message intended to bring and, and heap upon you in any way, shape, or, or form guilt or shame or condemnation. Guilt, shame, and condemnation are not God's tools. Those are the devil's tools. God's tools are conviction unto repentance through humility unto forgiveness. And forgiveness is there to be found with the Lord. And I hope and pray that you found that if you find yourself in this place, those listening online. What this should not do, our recognition, our abhorrence over this legacy of Nimrod that continues today should not do is it should not cause us to treat the men and women who have been deceived as the, by the God of this world as our enemies. They made choices. There will be accountability for those. They still rest under the blood of Christ. But you know who? Anyone who has made said choice among any other sinful choice that any of us has made will we'll stand before our God. We will answer to our God. But do you know who no one in this room will answer to? Anyone else in this room? You don't answer to me. I don't answer to you. Before our master, we will rise and fall. And that master is the Lord. So we make ourselves right with God. You flee to the one who is forgiving, the one who has already extended his love toward us through his son, Jesus Christ. We flee to him for mercy, and and you know what? Mercy is found. We speak against the wickedness of this age. We rail against the the, the perversion of, uh, of, of the image of God and of justice and of decency and civility. We speak against the God of selfishness of this age, and all of those things are good. All of those things are right. But we do not stand in judgment over people, over why they made the decisions they made. We call them unto repentance. We call them unto the word of God. We call them unto truth. But we don't stand in judgment over people. The church has been given the right to judge her own, 1 Corinthians 5 says to judge the actions of those who claim to be believers against the word of God, so that if a person who claims to be a believer is walking in obvious and unrepentant contradiction to the clear teachings of the word of God, the church has the right to take steps of discipline, censure against them for said things in the church. We have the duty to do such things, but we do not have the right to judge their souls. Only to say what is true. We do not sanction the unbeliever for living in unbelief. Unbelievers are going to live in unbelief. That's what unbelievers do. You can't expect an unbeliever to live as a believer until they have the Spirit of God to enable that. We do not remove ourselves from fellowship with the unbeliever for living in unbelief or else we'd have to remove ourselves in fellowship from those who are our very mission field. We love them and we tell them the truth. And then we leave the judgment to God. And in a just society, a God-ordained government would punish the murder of the innocent. But in our society, filled with, as it is, much injustice, we have very little control over that. However, we do have control over this, that we as a church do not compromise, that we keep the church pure, that we do not allow the Hegelian dialectic to be performed between the church's views on these issues and the world's views on these issues because as soon as they merge together, all you have is compromise, error. Helping us then understand that purity and separation exists for a reason and calling all of those 
who are in sin unto humility and repentance because God is a God of forgiveness. Helping all understand that their sins, past, present, and future, rest under the blood of Christ. And as we do not live under a false condemnation for the things that Christ has already forgiven us for, so too they all can live under said forgiveness. They can be redeemed from the demands of the God who has taken the blood of the innocent and gives back nothing but empty promises. And instead, step into the hands of the one who, though innocent himself, gave of his own blood that we might be forgiven. You see the difference? In the mother-child cult, the parents give of the blood of the child for their benefit. In the gospel, the son lays down his life willingly that he may accomplish the will of the father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's just a nuance. But it's an extremely important nuance. May we thus rejoice in the blessed truths of God's word. May we ever make the difference between the devil's counterfeits and the truths of scripture. And may we stand for these truths with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our might until the day that God takes us home. So we see that the legacy of this man, Nimrod, becomes a legacy of the first counterfeit Messiah. That is the legacy of Nimrod. It's the first of a long chain of traditions, faith systems, and men who have claimed Messiahship in error. And whether these legends in and of themselves bear truth or not, whether Nimrod was actually the beginning of this, whether that's the reason why Genesis 10 talks about him or not, there's certainly the fingerprints of this cult all throughout the scriptures. Those fingerprints are certainly still seen in our age today. And there's no debate that the error that bears his name, the error of Nimrod and of Semiramis and of Tammuz, has continued to this day. And may we identify it and reject it as we who are Christ followers. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.